Welcome to the Global Active Podcast. Broadcasting Global Active Thought Bombs. Exploding Global Active Mutative Materials for a Neo-Humanist, Post-Capitalist World. We're broadcasting from Nungabudja, also known as Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world. We look to the leadership and the ancient wisdom of Aboriginal elders, both past and present, and to other traditional owners around the world, recognising they are the caretakers of a repertory of knowledge that is essential to our continued existence now and into the future. With the Commons as our North Star and Peer to Peer as the Way, we engage with creative solutions, such as those being explored in movements for a new economy, solidarity economy, a proud all connected, parallel, interwoven, intersectional movements for social, economic and environmental justice. Together we strive for our individual and collective emancipation. Agitate. Educate. Organise. Create. Global Activity Radiates. Okay, I think the best way to start, if you're happy, is I'd like to know how you personally met Nora and how you got on this path to organising the conference last year, Mm. or this year. Mm, That's a good place to start. Um, I think I first got sort of deeply attracted to and involved with Gregory Bateson's work when I was um, doing my PhD, which wasn't that long ago, um, I started in 2008 and finished in 2014. And the first part of that program, which was in San Francisco, was coursework prior to writing a dissertation. And I was very fortunate to have on the faculty there a guy called Bradford Keeney. <coughs> who knew Bateson and knew um, people that were working in that cybernetic systems domain, so to speak. And in fact, he wrote a a very good book called The Aesthetics of Change. So he was inspiring. And um, I was very influenced by his work in my dissertation and in my subsequent practice as a teacher, if you like, or a tutor, as they tend to be called at Murdoch University and over the next six years or so. Uh, I was fortunate enough, surprisingly, to be acknowledged by Murdoch University for um, so-called outstanding contributions to learning and teaching. Uh, This is based largely on being innovative uh, and student surveys and what students say and what colleagues say about you. And that um, award, that accolade, came with a, a small grant which you can't use to buy a TV or a boat, but you can use for professional development purposes. So I was looking around for an attractive way to spend that that would um, 
be in alignment with my interests. And lo and behold, I came across an organisation called the Human Science Institute in the US and their annual conference, which um, was on making a difference that makes a difference, which is one of Bates, Gregory Bateson's lines, so to speak, which is often quoted. Mm-hmm. And Nora was going to be the keynote. And I read what she was going to talk about, and I also discovered that she had uh, just recently published a book, Small Arcs of Larger Circles. And I said, this is for me. I got the book, read the book, was absolutely engaged by what she said and how she said it and who she is. And I think one of the things that really touched me was that she's not an academic. Not that I have anything against academics per se. Some of my best friends are academics. But um, they often, academics, partly for all sorts of reasons, um, make things obscure. And uh, she doesn't. She, well, for some people she does, but to me it was liberating. She is both like a father, an artist and a scientist, if you will. She's not trained in science, but she's a deep thinker, which is the most important thing. So anyway, I toddled off to Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places, which is where this conference is, was. This is 2017. And I remember very vividly, the, the conference started late on a Friday afternoon or something like that. And it was started with... Um, some introductions and then Nora showed her film just like she did in our February conference and um, but before that I recognized her immediately because I'd seen photos of her and I looked at her you know across the room it was <laughs> it wasn't a romantic thing but there was an enormous connection, yeah. connection yeah. there I looked at her and she looked at me and we both smiled she I'd already had feedback uh, from the organisers of this event that she really liked the paper or the presentation I was going to give later in that conference. So I was encouraged by that because I kind of feel a resonance and an alignment between what she and her father and to a lesser extent her grandfather had done and were doing and I wanted to be part of that scene. Well, I was so taken with what she said and how she behaved and her capacity to communicate in a respectful, delightful and joyous way. And even when people were saying things that she probably didn't agree with or felt were uh, missing the point, so to speak, she embraced it and was able to incorporate them into the conversation in a way where nobody felt put down, dismissed, belittled, which often does happen, of course, in conversations, especially in academic circles where it's often about winning arguments. There are no arguments to be won in Nora's world, and I think that's pretty much true in my world now too. So that's how I met her. And then I was so enchanted by her at this event... I invited her to have breakfast with me and go for a walk and I wanted to talk to her a bit more 
and she shared some personal things about her life and I did too and just spontaneously I hadn't planned this I said uh, how would you like to come to Perth and speak do a conference whatever there because I'd like to share you with my friends and my family and my colleagues in my neck of the woods and without a hesitation she said I'd love to <laughs> so I was on the hook then to organize it so that's how it happened I think I know how that feels yeah um well the conference as a participant I can say was uh, you know just a tremendous experience and um yeah Thank you to you for your role in uh, introducing me to this uh, beautiful, uh, profound, graceful human being. Uh, I'm uh, also tremendously kind of excited and, um, yeah, just uh, also a very deep resonance uh, with with her work. And, yeah, there's, there's just a quality about her that's actually, um, you know, there's... Just a deep congruence. I mean, that's that's what I kind of um, that's the best way that I can express that. I think, but um, I guess you know we we want to talk a bit about the contrast of that to to academia. And you know, you've had this experience um, just recently uh, that kind of uh, is the epitome of uh, not that. <laughs> um, so could, would you like to talk to that a little? Well, sure. It's, it's illustrative um, of, you know, more widespread collective manifestations of toxicity or pathology or whatever you want to call it. Um, I've had a sort of a love-hate relationship with universities and higher education, I think, all my life. Um, and I think I oscillate between attraction to the ideal of a university and the pursuit of truth and inquiry and knowledge and robust debate about anything. Whereas, and, and universities perhaps never ever exactly like that, but I think um, when I first went to university, which was back in the 1960s, they were more uh, like that than they certainly are today. There have been huge changes. And a lot of that's due to the massification of higher education. Like when I went to the University of Melbourne, then I think fewer than 10% of the population went to university. And you... Um, Still, people went for all sorts of reasons, a lot often to do with gaining qualifications for professional purposes and so on. But um, it wasn't so corporatised. The academics themselves tended to run the universities and the administrative people, managerial people, were more like servants of the academics. Well, that's flipped. Now they're very corporatised and commercial values rather than educational values seem to be dominant and that's meant that um, things like tenure which enabled academics to speak with a certain degree of freedom 
have largely disappeared and um, universities have become much more run by managerial types um, on a financial kind of basis. So just to get to I think what you're asking me about, um, I found that my work in universities has been centred very much around teaching and, and research, qualitative research that I do. I speak at, have spoken at um, occasional conferences over the years, the last decade or so, and written papers and had a bit of publication. But I've never been on a publishing or perish kind of mission and published endlessly in order to climb the academic ladder. It's never interested me. And I've never ever never been interested in disciplinary specialisation. Um, a bit like um, Deep Throat in All the President's Men, whose advice was follow the money. I've followed the inquiry, you know, where does the question take you? And it could take you into any discipline or, or, in, or beyond academia because disciplinary knowledge is not the only kind of knowledge in, in my view. And, and everybody knows that except academics, basically, and, and whatever. Uh, so um, I really, really enjoyed the contact I had in the teaching environment uh, at universities over the last decade in, at UWA in Albany where I was close to, we lived in Denmark which is close by, and over the last six years until the end of 2018 at Murdoch University and what was really gratifying was the feedback both body language, oral and written, I got from not everyone but most of my students about how they had progressed and clarified and found meaning and purpose in their lives, which a lot of them didn't have much of at all when they came into this 14-week program that I was involved with for six years. That was delightful. Um, I thought that because I ticked all the boxes in terms of the um, specific qualification criteria to be a, a top candidate for renewal of contracts, because that's another thing that's happened every everyone's... So much of the teaching people at universities these days, including myself, was just on occasional short-term contracts. So you don't know from semester to semester, sometimes year to year, whether you're going to get a, a job to continue, which in itself is highly stressful. Um, didn't worry me too much, but it's just not stress... It, it's, it's terrible for people, generally. And um, anyway, because of... Uh, the feedback I had from colleagues and students and awards I'd won. I also won an Australian Government Award. The only person in Murdoch actually to do that in 2018 for outstanding contributions to student learning. 
um, I thought it was almost automatic. I knew it wasn't entirely automatic, but I thought it was almost automatic that I would be offered another position, and because I enjoy the work so much, despite not enjoying a lot of the red tape and stuff, I probably would have said, yeah, I would have gone ahead. But they didn't. And when I asked why, I received an answer which made no sense whatsoever. And when I followed up inquiring about what that meant, I haven't even had a response to my follow-up. Um, I, some of my colleagues are in similar positions too. And I, I think that um, what it illustrates, actually I might just add, it's, it's not something I'm bitter about. In fact, it's probably a blessing in disguise because I'm now doing things that um, are good for me to do given the stage of life at which I'm at. And um, so it's, it's not as if it's bad, it's just that it was a shock because I didn't expect it. But I think it illustrates that uh, what the universities are looking for basically these days are people that will follow directions. There's a curriculum, there's a course, this is how you teach it, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. It's very much focused on um, a lot of assessments and we would spend a lot of time debating, for the want of a better term, that's probably a not the best word, whether or not a particular paper was worth 57 or 58 or 60. And it was interesting, we do these, we used to do the, and this is throughout the whole sector, do these so-called moderation things where there'd be an assignment and all the people would mark the assignment, not knowing who it was from. And the idea is to try and get some sort of common ground. But was interesting because some people would fail it some people would give it a high distinction despite the elaborate and endless energy that had gone into preparing a marking rubric Rubrics. you're supposed to make it objective and quantifiable yeah. absolutely insane yeah. but anyway you know one plays the game that sounds to me like a very interesting study actually anyway um, look I'm um, I'm hearing really, you know, uh, a huge injustice just, you know, from, uh, you know, within your personal circumstances there. And that's, um, uh, that's grievous. <laughs> I hear you saying that you've, um, you know, you're continuing your great work uh, in spite of that. But, you know, I'm also hearing you say that what's happened is a... It's not just—it's not about you. It's about a much larger systemic problem. So, obviously, you know, on one level, I'm sure we could put that down to just you know neoliberalism, basically. But um, I mean, that's a—I think that's kind of a more superficial kind of—I uh, mean, there's definitely truth to it, obviously. But I'm interested in what's kind of a little bit deeper than that, or you know. Um, I guess uh, Nora would call it the liminal, wouldn't she? So, you know, the the whole thrust of uh, reductionary science, uh, you know, I mean, that's problematic enough in quantum physics, uh, but when you're coming to 
uh, something like the humanities, it obviously becomes much more uh, in focus, I guess. But mm. so I just, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts just in terms of, and this is obviously going straight to the heart of mm. Nora's work and her father's work, mm. in terms of everything being contextualized in a way that actually our existing scientific methods are perhaps uh, inadequate for and, and perhaps even uh, inadequate's not adequate enough a word. <laughs> well, look, there's so much uh, in what you speak about and ask about. Uh, it's a bit hard to know where to start, but I want to first start by just saying that for me... This is not a tragedy or a disaster. Maybe it's an injustice. I don't know what that means. But, but certainly for the students, I think it's bad because I think I had something to contribute to yeah. them. And I'm not saying that. I'm only saying that because of what they've told me. Yeah. Dozens and dozens of them over the years. And I <clears throat> also feel sorry for uh, my teaching colleagues and others that work at universities who are basically <clears throat> censored. You know, they can't speak up. But if they do speak out or challenge, they're um, in danger of not having their contracts renewed. And, of course, everybody's got commitments, mortgages or whatever, or living expenses at least. So it's, it's really sad. It's really sad. Yeah, look, um, one of the things about uh, the work of Bateson, and including Nora, is that everything is connected with everything else. So the science, it's sort of presented as if it's objective and value neutral. But in actual fact, it's a social construct. So that the money that goes into this or to that and <clears throat> what things get studied, <coughs> excuse me, what things get publicised, how they get taken up and what things get converted into technology depends very much on the, um, the culture and all sorts of systems, including, you know, we live within a, a capitalist system. It's not a dirty word, it's just the, what it's called. Mm -hmm. And that has a huge influence on what's done and why things are done, including the whole way in which science is understood, the so-called scientific method. And you mentioned reductionism. People also talk about linear thinking. You know, we, we, we supervalue quantitative data and metrics and, and there's, there's this tendency to think that if something can't be measured then it's either not worth studying or unimportant and everybody knows that's not true but it's part of the ideology around science and if you take a view that the system is kind of self-perpetuating you know, we live in a world, don't we, where, uh, I think this might relate to what you're asking me about, where at least since um, the Second World War, uh, oh, no, not since then, but since about the 70s, 
After the Second World War in the United States, for example, probably in Australia, I don't have any quantitative data on this, but the um, inequality lessened. You know, everyone's income went up, but the incomes of the, the poorer and whatever grew faster, and so we developed middle classes and so on. But over the last two, three decades, especially, inequality is just getting worse, uh, more and more pronounced. And that is a self-perpetuating phenomenon within the system. Because as the small proportion of very wealthy people accumulate more and more wealth, they are able to tweak things and organise things politically in such a way as to preserve or protect, which only makes things worse. It's, it's kind of a, a vicious feedback sort of system. So um, who knows what can be done about it? And I'm just... I think you do know. <laughs> well, I, I don't know, really. Uh, I mean, what I'm saying when I say that is that um, uh, some people are saying that, and I've just come across a paper about this recently, a guy called Jem, I forget his name, who in the UK just published a very good paper which basically says because of climate change, the question now is what can we do to mitigate it or to cope with it or, um, you know, to, to reduce it, that kind of thing. All these things that the environmentalist people are doing. The question now is it's inevitable that we're going to have a, a, a catastrophe in living systems, probably particularly human systems, because it's irreversible. This is his argument. Therefore, what we need to spend our attention on now, and hardly any attention has been given to it, is how do we adapt? What do we do to prepare ourselves for an apocalyptic world <laughs> where, which will be very different from the way it is now? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know whether we're going to have to have huge disasters in order to get some fundamental changes. Because despite the irrationality and disastrous projections, which pretty much everyone agrees to now, not only from climate change, but the financial system and the threat of nuclear obliteration, these are three major things and the manifestations of all of this stuff are everywhere to be seen especially I think well not only but certainly especially in countries like the US and Australia where there are so many symptoms of dysfunction so I guess to bring this back to my particular orientation which is a lens through which to see this and it's a very very different lens in a way it's a different lens from a very different lens from the prevailing lens uh, but 
it's also it's also a very simple lens because it doesn't make it doesn't break things up into parts so much you know the Bateson idea really essentially is that the world is in constant flux it's a process and everything is interdependent and interrelated with everything else so you can't fix the education system without simultaneously fixing everything else because nothing exists in isolation so every attempt to do something is bound to be very limited and may even not do any good at all make matters worse downstream because of the interdependence so does this mean it was hopeless and we can do nothing no it doesn't but it might mean and this is where I think Bateson resonates with me and my thinking is that um, what's more important as we look at and see the complex interdependencies that exist in everything rather than rush in to fix particular problems Yes, there are things we can do, and certainly there are things we can do within our field of influence. But as for, you know, grand top-down interventions that will solve problems, I think that's probably less likely to happen. Um, I'm organising this uh, Beyond Paradigms conference at the moment, so... Nora has uh, tentatively agreed to speak at via video conference, which is which is exciting. Um, but one of the things in the lead up to that conference we're doing is asking people to, and you know, uh, you've you've uh, invited me uh, to ask you this question, uh, just from what you've said there, is to actually take off your lens, <laughs> or to apply your lens. Uh, and yeah, what what's your version of uh, beyond this current paradigm? That um, yeah, I'm not going to say any more than that. Well, the short answer is I don't know because there is it's evolving and changing all the time. I think the worst thing we can do is to think that there's a grand theory which will we should all try to proselytise and convert people to that will be much better than the prevailing paradigm, if you like, around um, who we are and the way we are and so on. I think uh, that things like recognition that we're all interconnected this is why we can learn so much from indigenous peoples and ancient cultures. You know, we think that they've got a lot to learn from us and we wonder why the hell they don't learn it because they're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps as we think they should to fit in with our culture. Well, Are you suggesting that maybe they're not interested in our culture? That's uh, Actually, there's a. I, I have to, forgive me, indulge me for a moment, there's a great um, quote from Chomsky. He was... Uh, he was being interviewed by some South American uh, activists, some indigenous uh, activists, First Nations people, and the question was something around um, what, what, you know, whether or not it was good for 
um, the ch their children to be learning English or engaging in uh, in the Western paradigm of education. And his answer was something like, uh, "It depends whether you think there's a, a future to that <laughs> to that civilization." Yeah. Well, um, I, I mentioned Bradford Keeney before, and I'm just. Just, just popped into my head because I think it's re very relevant to what we're talking about at the moment. He spent a lot of time with the Kalahari Bushmen in Africa. So much so, over 10 years, he was there for weeks, if not months at a time, I understand. They uh, generally don't like um, Western anthropologists and others coming and looking at them and trying to work out what they're doing. In fact, according to Brad and um, I suspect he's right. The they, the Bushmen think they know they basically their idea is that the Westerners, and including anthropologists, just don't get it, and that we are insane. You know, our culture is insane because from their perspective, it is. We are seduced by. the system, into behaving the way we behave. And we take it as natural, and we assume that it's good. I was reading, um, it's a little aside, but it kind of relates to what I'm saying here, about the power of culture to um, seduce us human beings into thinking that the way things are is normal and good, and why doesn't everyone else be like us? Uh, back in the 1920s or 30s, I think, a couple of young girls, one was about five or six and the other was about ten, were discovered in northern India who'd been raised by a pack of wolves. Mm. Now, what was interesting is that these girls were very healthy. All they ate was meat. Mm. They couldn't walk on two legs. Mm. They walked and ran like wolves. They... You know, ate the same way out of, as wolves did. Couldn't smile. Certainly couldn't talk, of course. But when they were rescued, <laughs> when they were rescued by a missionary, I don't know, a clergyman and his wife, one of them was deeply miserable and passed away, the younger one. The other one lived for, I don't know, how many years, maybe six, ten years. She did learn to say a few things, and she did learn to stand on her hind legs. But, you know, when she really wanted to move fast, she'd be down on all fours. Mm. And the clergyman said that he never really thought they were that she was human. Mm. So that, that, to me, is a... You know, there are many other examples too, but I just came across that recently, and it just really emphasises how... So much of what we take as being natural and human is just cultural. So, uh, that's why I think we have as much, if not more, to learn from our Indigenous peoples as they might have to learn from us. The things they're learning from us are not useful and good things for the most part. You know, you've seen pictures, as I have, of uh, black and white photos of dignified, healthy, upstanding Aboriginal people, trim, taut and terrific, with gleaming teeth, and dignity 
you know, taken 50 or 100 years ago. And now so many of those people have, have lost their dignity to some extent. And not all, of course, but they're fighting. You know, life is marvellous the way it can adapt even to the most horrendous situations in which they have um, found themselves as a result of European colonisation. So instead of foraging for good food now, they, um, they eat white flour and sugar and drink booze. So, I mean, it's... It's um, And our tendency with our paradigm is to say, well, that individual's at fault. They're weak and lazy or stupid or dumb or whatever. And that, that is absolutely crazy thinking, of course, which shows a complete lack of history and anthropological understanding, for the want of a better term. Yeah. I recently spent some time with an Aboriginal elder, Joey Williams, who was at the conference uh, with some storytellers down in Denmark, and this is not, not the first time, the second time I've been out with him in the field, so to speak, where, but this time it really struck me how, how little I am connected with the rest of nature. I've kind of, I was so, I, I managed to get a little bit more of a taste of that. He would say things like, just look at that plant. Be with that plant. It's a huge difference. And I uh, tasted a bit of that because we spent hours doing that and writing about it and thinking about it and communicating and just being. And it's just such a hugely different orientation or worldview from the one we've inherited from our legacy, which is that nature's to be conquered and used for our purposes and really doesn't matter very much. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's fundamental, isn't it? And in terms of um, beyond our current paradigm, uh, that's certainly, yeah, it's a big part of this podcast actually is... Uh, is uh, yeah, I was about to ask you that question uh, anyway, and you've uh, spoken to it, so I really, really appreciate that. Um, so a connection there then to warm data. Mm. And let's talk about, obviously, mm. you know, we want to do a little bit of a plug. Mm. <laughs> we want to do a bit of a plug for the upcoming conference, but it's oh, all well, within the context of this. Um, yeah. It's not so much for the upcoming conference, uh, because the I don't think there's going to be any likelihood that it won't be oversubscribed so to speak um, but I do want to do a plug if that's the word sounds very <laughs> commercial doesn't it for um, for the notion for the idea of researching relationships rather than things and instead of looking for you know structuring experiments in terms of What's the independent variable and the dependent variables and controlling all the things? You know, all of this has its place. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's nothing, in fact, on the contrary. It's enormously valuable things we've learned as a result of traditional science. But there's also enormously valuable things we've missed. And therefore, to look at qualitative data, which has equal value and importance, if not more, 
it, it complements anything that's quantitative and measurable. So looking at the complex interrelationships between things, the liminal area, if you will, and um, uh, recognising that um, living things are autonomous, you know, this idea of autopoiesis, they self-change and correct and adjust all the time, both internally, like our bodies, for example. So much is happening inside of us that we have no awareness of consciously. But it's each of the cells and each of the parts of the cells and tissues and so on and are doing things all the time in response in order to maintain and exist and renew and so on. And we're doing it too all the time with the people we see, our environment, the air, the water. Uh, there's this continual flux and adaptation. And uh, so much paralysis and lack of good action happens or doesn't happen in the world because no one knows what to do. There are, we're, we're confronted by so-called wicked problems all the time. And this is why this work which um, focuses on this complexity and recognising complexity rather than jumping in with pouring more money here or fixing that there is attracting more and more attention. And, you know, Nora is so much in demand these days because of her work on warm data, which is basically data about relationships. So it lends itself, this, this warm data lab process lends itself to addressing any complex question. And you don't need to be an expert. You have lots of people who focus on various dimensions of the, the issue or the problem or the question, whatever it might be, contributing their perspectives and moving around and out of that process emerges insights and understanding which can lead to doing things or not doing things <laughs> or not doing things that one was going to do because one sees that uh, and not just one but the group sees that it's going to be counterproductive downstream or might have some adverse consequences because you know so much of what we've done in the world what governments have done and corporations have done and individuals do with the best of intentions often turn out to make matters worse. You know, the classic things like DDT and thalidomide and introducing the cane toads into Queensland to get rid of a beetle in the sugar cane. The consequences of those things have been absolutely horrendous. Deregulating the financial system. Horrendous. Anyway, uh, the lovely thing is that um, uh, people are beginning to see that there's value, huge value, in looking at complexity, looking at issues or problems or whatever that, uh, in all sorts of contexts, government, business, education, health, you name it, through this uh, approach. Um, and there are other people doing similar things. This is not the only way or even necessarily the best way, but it's certainly a way which resonates with me, which 
is very, very powerful in um, <clears throat> shifting the paradigm or at least relaxing the old paradigm and moving in new directions which are going to be healthier and more sustainable to use a not very good word which is abused these days. So I'm very very excited about uh, Warm Data Labs and the way in which Nora has discovered that this is a very powerful process to shift our thinking, shift our approach to whatever, and that there are already about 60 people that are trained by her to host Warm Data Labs. They're mainly in Europe, none in the US, none in Australia yet. There will be now this year in, in Australia. We've got an American, we've got two Americans coming to this, con, to this training in November in um, Bustleton, lovely Bustleton down there. And this will leverage, it'll have a, it'll create a, uh, an international community of people who have both the skill set and the conceptual understanding, which underpins it, to carry on and do this work effectively. This isn't just a step-by-step -step program or a bag of tricks, which is what the world wants. It's, you know, off people and up and say, well, how do I use this in my work? Well, in a way that misses the point because the point is when you see the world this way more deeply, you will see things more differently and therefore do things differently or not do things that you would have done or do things that you wouldn't have done. But there's no formula for that. Sounds a bit like magic to me. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, this is actually... Totally magic. <laughs> Well, it is, you know, magic's a funny word. If if, uh, if I mean it in the very deepest uh, sense. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, um, in a transformation. It, it, in a sense, it's not magic. It's it's, the, but it is mysterious. Oh. And anything's mysterious. We don't see what we don't see. Oh. And um, so much thinking that's radically different and this is radically different is either dismissed as obvious and, or misunderstood mm. so that's why it's important to go deep into the work so that you don't um, just adapt or adopt some of the language of it mm. but not really get it mm. um, so it's an ongoing journey and it's delightfully funny and playful and that's what we need, don't we? <laughs> oh, we do. Absolutely. We all take ourselves far too seriously. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. This has actually been really fantastic. We really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Global Active Podcast. Check out globalactive.org for other interviews exploring post-capitalist thinking and My name's Karun Kalman. Thanks for listening.